0: Let's pray. Father, that's our prayer this morning, that you would fill us, use us, mold us, call us. We're thankful for that promise that you will do that work, because we've tried. We can't do it on our own. This morning, we pray that you would use your word. This revelation to us reveals who you are. It's a way to see you rightly to apprehend you and to respond and to live in light of that. Would you use our ears, help us to hear this morning, our minds to think about who you are, our hearts to receive what's here and the truth of who you are. And as we walk out of here this morning, we would be transformed by your grace, by seeing you, by being together as your people, as you promised that you will do pray that you would deal with any resistance in our hearts that would keep you from doing that work in us that we most need. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. You can open your Bibles to uh, Psalm, Psalm 8. Psalm 8. Um, if you've been here through the month of July, you might have noticed we've different folks have been preaching on the the Psalms, uh, I think they're just easy to kind of get our hands around in one particular lesson. So, but this morning we're going to look at this passage, Psalm 8. You read through this as you turn there. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babes and infants you have established strength. and the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. A few weeks ago, my son and I, Cameron, had a chance to uh, do some hiking up in the, in the mountains in the Colorado Rockies. Uh, three or four days, we hiked up to an area near the, uh, the Continental Divide, and we camped a couple nights at a lake called Jasper Lake. Um... If you enjoy the mountains, if you like them, if you've been there, it's hard to argue with the beauty. It's breathtaking. Everywhere you look, you see just scenes that that just remind you of God's splendor and who He is and His creation. The whole time it's like this. Look at this. Look at this. Let's take a picture of that. It's like you can't take enough pictures to capture the beauty that's there. Uh, The last morning that we were there, there was a particular moment and experience that I won't soon... Forget, and, and sometimes if, if you're like me, you don't know exactly what comes together to form these times, but it was a, it was a moment. I got up early this last day that we were up there, and, um, and we got up. We were camped at this little campsite right next to this mountain lake. Um, if you'll picture it with me, beautiful lake, cool temperatures. Uh, I was up before the mosquitoes were up, alpine forest surrounding it. As you look off to the west, there is uh, the continental divide, this mountain range that forms that. There are snow fields. There are waterfalls that you see. And so everything in the senses is captured by the beauty, the smell, what you see and what you hear. And I woke up early this morning, and that particular morning, and the sun was coming up um, in the west, at the east, as it usually does, <laughs> that side and as it was coming up it was casting light on the mountain range and as it fell you could see more and more of this mountain range and it just continued to illumine everything that was there and I stood there by the lake looking uh, looking to the west just taking all of this in and uh, to top this moment off of the beauty and the smell I had a fresh brewed cup of coffee in one hand and I had my bible in another and I just sat there and I read and And I was reminded of the majesty of God. I couldn't, as I stood there, I wanted to to say something or do something. You kind of wanted to scream or yell or sing. Uh, My son was still sleeping in the tent, so uh, considering him, and there was, I think, one tent across the lake, so considering them, I I didn't, but I, I wanted to. And if you were there and you've been in those moments, you know that everything in you calls out to say, I want to do something with this moment. I need to say something about it because there's something so beautiful and majestic about it. And yet, what informs what we say and to whom we say it is the book that I had in my hand. That God's Word gives us a lens to see and understand everything that we see in life. In that particular moment, one might be tempted to worship what they see. One might be tempted to worship the mountains and the beauty that's there And yet God's Word calls us to look beyond what we see, to see Him who lies behind what it is that we see. And to worship Him, and not to worship what we see, the creation, but to worship the Creator. Psalm 8 gives us words, it gives us an expression for moments like that. And Scripture as a whole provides a lens for us to see life, to understand it accurately, and to respond rightly. To who God is, because it displays for us Him, and not just what we see, but how He informs everything that we do see. You know, a lot of times we we see God's Word or we see this book that we have as an answer key for the test of life. Right? We go, I've got a problem, I got a question, I need to find the answer, and we flip through it looking for the answers. It's a troubleshooting guide. Say, okay, I got to deal with this problem. Where's the answer in here to this particular problem? And and indeed. The Bible is that. God's Word does give us answers to questions. It does help us solve problems that we have. It is a troubleshooting guide, if you will, but it's so much more than that. The complexity of life, the way that God has established, the way that He has set it up, doesn't allow it to provide for us easy, pat answers. And you've been there, and I've been there, when people have tried to use it in easy, pat kinds of ways, and you realize that the complexity of life is much, it draws much more, and we need to look at him. We need to see and understand who he is. There are no perfect answers. There's no formula. There's no book we're going to find. There's no exact verse that's going to give us a perfect marriage. Partly because we're imperfect spouses, right? It's going to give us the perfect family or tell us exactly how to care for our kids, how to raise them, exactly, how to make life work, how to make our money stretch to the degree that it needs to, how we need to make our time stretch. There's no formula to that. And we can look all we want, and yet the complexity of life always brings us back to, I don't know what to do. And and God's Word gives us sure things to count on, but more than just an answer book, more than just a formula that we can find, it gives us a lens to see and to apprehend God. And as we see Him, we understand everything else in light of Him. Oftentimes when we come to the situations, the quest for that answer, for the solution, whatever it is, you can fill in the blank in your own life that we want. I just want to get this figured out. We come to it and we look at this and God says, here, look in and through this lens. Scripture is a lens. What is it that you see? I want you to look in this and, and see what you see. And what do we see when we look in this? We see Him, don't we? This displays and is ultimately a book a revelation of who he is. It's not just an answer book for us. And yet sometimes we look at it and we go, okay, God, I'm looking, but all I see is you. I thought I would find some sort of an answer. I thought I would find the solution I want. And he says, yep, that's what you need. You need to see me. And as we see scripture, we see him. And as we understand and know who God is, he gives illumination. He helps us understand the situation's that we're in. He gives us, if you will, a solution that we need. And Psalm 8 provides for us a lens. As we see the majesty of God that's portrayed here, we're not going to find a lot of answers in the sense that, what car should I buy? What school should I go through? What job should I take? What house should I buy? We're not going to find the specific answers, but what we're going to see is who God is. We're going to find out a little bit about him and his majesty. Psalm 8 starts and ends with the very first, the exact verse in Hebrew and in English. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And if we're going to understand what this psalm is about, we need to realize that it's bracketed with with insight to go, okay, it starts here and it ends here. And guess what? Everything in between is about the same thing. If you will, the interpretive framework, the way we understand this particular psalm is that it's about the majesty of God. It's about who He is. It's putting on display his Majesty. So an essential key is understanding. This is about understanding and knowing God in all of his majestic reality. It starts with these two words, O Lord, our Lord. In your version, perhaps, and I know it's in mine, the Lord are capitalized a little bit differently. It's telling us that, that there's two different words there behind the English words that we use, Lord. And one of them is Yahweh. With all caps, Yahweh, this is to remind us of the God who called Moses to redeem the people out of Israel. It's to remind us of God who is, is self-sufficient, who is all-superior and is great. He is the one that called the, the Hebrews out of the slavery from Egypt. He is the one that said to Moses, I am that I am. If you remember the whole story and the ten plagues and the way God showed His superiority over the gods of Egypt. He said, I'm superior. I am Lord. I am that I am. And then what did He do? He brought them out and He parted the Red Sea and He dried the land and they came across. And then what happened? The Egyptians followed and He destroyed the Egyptians with those same waters that He saved Israel with. Then what did He do? He fed them with manna from heaven. He gave them water from a rock. He purified that water. He led them. He guided them. He directed them. The same thing He does for us. This is the covenant God who has promised to care for and to save His people. This is the Lord. And the second word there, O Lord, our Yahweh, the covenant God, our Lord, our Adonai, just means our governor, our master, the one who oversees us, the one that rules us. So as he opens the psalm, David here says, "Oh." God, Yahweh, the one who has saved us and is saving us. Our ruler, our master, the one that rules over us. And then he goes on with this statement. It's just an exclamation. How majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. The majesty here, it's one of those words that sometimes it's hard to get your hands around. It's, it's kind of like that, you know. It's kind of like the mountains. It's kind of like whatever you fill in the blank. What is that majesty? Well, a couple of things that might be helpful for us. Why, it, just, it describes God's greatness, His superiority, His power, His splendor. And all those words are kind of the same way, aren't they? Like, okay, I kind of get it, but I kind of don't. There's so much more there. If you turn with me to, to uh, Exodus chapter 15, we have just a little picture here. I think it's helpful for this majesty, um, the way it's used. This term, Exodus 15 verses, I'm going to read 9 through 11 this is in the Song of Moses and it follows, if you remember, it follows the destruction of the Israelites, the rescuing of God's people and the waters come down and they obliterate the, the Egyptians as they try to follow them. And then Moses has this praise, this song of God who has done this. In verse 9, uh, Moses writes, The enemy said, I will pursue, I will, I will overtake, I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I will draw my sword My hand shall destroy them. And then you blew with your wind. The sea covered them. They sank like lead in the mighty waters. And then this question, this statement. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? Who is like you? He asks the question as he reflects on all that he had seen God do in the rescuing and the protecting and the destruction of the Israelites. And we have the same term, the majesty of God, reflected in two different ways. First of all, in verse 10, you sank, they sank like lead in the mighty waters. The term mighty, there's the same word we translate majesty. In the mighty, the superior waters, the waters of judgment that you poured on the Egyptians, you destroyed them with your might and with your power. we see God's majesty displayed in his destruction in that case of the enemies of God. And then in verse 11, he says, Who is like you, majestic in holiness. Who is like you in this way? And we see God's holiness displayed in the way that he protected and, and in that case judged the Israelites. And the key point, I think, of the majesty of God that we need to take away its superiority, its greatness, but it's the visible display of God's greatness. It's seen. It's something that is put on display and that's why the psalmist here, David, says, how majestic is Your name in all of the earth! You have set Your glory above the heavens. What he's looking at is nature. He's looking at creation and he says, I see displayed in one facet, in one aspect, the majesty of God. It's seen with my eyes. And Moses saw it as as God destroyed Has Yahweh destroyed the enemies of the Israelites? It's put on display. It's seen before our very eyes. And as we come to this psalm, the question we need to ask is, how is it that God's majesty is displayed? It's seen in creation, of course. It's seen in nature. And we look and you stand on those moments and you go, oh, God is great. He's majestic. But how is it seen in and through this psalm? Creation is front and center, but there's a surprising focus on humanity. There's a surprising focus throughout this psalm on humanity, on, on, on men, on men and women. We see that God's majesty is displayed in and through Psalm 8, through humanity, in a surprising kind of way. What he does, David looks at the weakness of humanity of man. He looks at God's mysterious care for us, and then he looks at the status that God has given to us and the role that he has placed upon us. And in so doing, we see God's greatness displayed in and through us. The next verse moves on from the glory of the heavens looking upward to back down to earth. And we see, he says in verse 2, out of the mouth of babes and infants you have established strength because of your foes. There's a surprising shift, right? The unusual to go from the greatness and splendor of, of creation to babies, to out of the mouth of babes and nursing infants. That's what's being described here. From the lips of children and infants, you have established strength. Now, what do we see? What's the the psalmist putting on display here? Some of your Bibles might read out of the mouth of babes and infants, you have ordained praise, or that you have prepared strength. And so, what are we getting at? What's he mean? Is it strength or is it praise? And the answer is yes. It's both, strength and praise. The word is strength, and it's translated everywhere else in the Old Testament as strength. But Jesus helps us out, and you could look at this in our time, but in Matthew 21, He quotes this verse and he helps us out and he says that you have prepared praise for these children and for these infants as he is accepting the praise of God in that particular situation. He says that it's praise. And so we understand, as you look at it, you go, well, what is it that comes out of mouths? How does strength come out of mouths? Well, we go, well, praise comes and worship comes out of mouths and strength comes from praise. How does strength come from praise? Praise is acknowledging The power and the might of God, right? And strength comes from that. As we acknowledge who he is, we see who he is, we understand that. Well, what's the outcome of this? These words that come out of the mouths that is strength, that is praise. The outcome is that God's enemies are silenced. That God's enemies are silenced by what? By God's words? No, by by the words that he gives them that come out of the mouth of infants, of, of children who and many times don't even know how to speak, we see the very enemies of God are silenced. They don't have anything to say. They're stopped by this praise that comes from the mouths of children. So what's the point here? The point is, how is God's majesty seen? It's seen in utter weakness, is it not? That the picture we have of infants, the picture here we have of these these children that, that can't even hardly speak is that they are utterly weak. It's the epitome of weakness. They have no strength in and of themselves. In fact, you know that. You know, you've seen, you've had many of you children, you go, they need me for everything. They have no capacity to do anything in and of themselves. So we see a great and powerful picture of weakness. And even God is the one that teaches them to to praise. God is the one that puts the words in their mouths. They don't even have the words to say. God's great power is displayed from this verse as he defeats his enemies through those who are weak and incapable of doing anything. Let me repeat that. God's great power is displayed as he defeats his enemies through those who are weak and incapable of doing anything. Does that remind you of anyone? Have you ever looked in the mirror only to realize, I can do almost nothing Have you recognized, have those points of your weakness? In our culture, we hate weakness. We despise it. We hide it. We develop it. We dress it up. We lie about it. We do anything we can to hide weakness. And yet, we have here that in weakness, God's majesty is displayed. We see who God is in and through the weakness of children and infants. We see it through the weakness that that we display And to the degree that we acknowledge and understand that and he brings us to that realization, we realize we need him. And in so doing, he is displayed in his power. Paul had words that address this directly. If you turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. A passage that that might be familiar to you is describing this weakness. Chapter 12, verses 7 through 10. Paul writes this, "...so to keep me from being too elated by the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from being too elated. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness." Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. We don't know much about this messenger and the thorn in the flesh, but we know why it was given to him. It was given to him to reveal and to demonstrate and accentuate his weakness. And why was that weakness revealed to him? Why? Because... Christ's grace is sufficient in the midst of weakness. His power is made perfect. How is his power perfected? It's completed. It's made manifest. It's seen. It's made visible in and through his weakness, and it's seen in and through ours. As we acknowledge and see our weakness, his majesty is put on display. We're pushed to the side, and we realize we're just participants here in what he wants to do. What does weakness do? It provides an opportunity for God to be God and display him. As we look at our passage here, we see that as we acknowledge our weakness, as we see what he does, we can rest in it, we can boast in it. And guess what God will do with it? He will silence his enemies. Who are the enemies of God? We're not talking about people as much as we're talking about our sin and the flesh and the world and Satan. And so we realize that he will give us words to say. That he will make us strong, even as we acknowledge we're weak. And so the psalmist, how do we see the majesty of God It's seen in the weakness of humanity? In the weakest of weak, God is shown to be great. He goes on from there, from looking at the, the smallest and the, the least able, you might say, to he looks back up, his eyes refer to the heavens. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man, that that you should care for him? What's he looking at? He's looking at the heavens and he sees, again, the beauty and the intricacy of everything that God has made. It says the stars that you have set in place, the work of your fingers, the very fingers, the intricate work of God as he displays for us the universe. As we look up at the night sky, to go, oh, This God set each of these in place. Isaiah reminds us that He calls each of them by name. Each night as they appear to us, He reveals them. The same way the sun comes up and sets by God's command. This is the God that we are looking at. And and He has a moment, right? He says, He asks two questions. Questions are set in parallel with each other. In light of this, in light of the God who has so intricately made all of this, and the vastness of it, what is man that you are mindful of Him and the Son of Man, that you care for Him. Now, it's important as we look at this that we understand that the, what, the, what the psalmist, what David is saying, he's not so much considering the heavens as much as he's considering the one who made the heavens. He's not standing there saying, I'm so small in light of the universe. That's certainly true. If I'm small in light of the universe, how much more small might I be in light of the one who made the universe? Did that make sense? <laughs> How much smaller might I be in light of Him? I'm small in regard to all of this. And what does that tell me about this one? And it's important as we look at this, the questions that He asks, they're not, they're not pessimistic kinds of questions. They're not driven by this pessimism of, oh, I'm so small and so insignificant. What's He's doing? is They're driven by an astonishment. They're driven by a wonder that the One who made all of this does care for me that the one who made it put all these stars in place is mindful of me he cares about me he is the one that has covenanted to save me does that make any sense at all he is not just oh woe is me he is like I don't understand this and he's driven by wonder and for each of us as we come to this point in our lives in those moments to go oh my goodness he is so much bigger than I ever imagined. And you look at yourself and you go, and He cares about me? That it should drive us not to pessimism and to despair, but to go, oh, it should drive us to wonder and awe that this same God that did that cares about us. We do one of two things in humanity. We might, do, we might diminish the majesty of God. And we say we bring ourselves up and we bring Him down. And we say that gap isn't so great. Uh, we're, we're amazing creatures, we can do anything, we've been to the moon, on and on and on, and you know, we're much closer, we try to diminish that gap, release the tension, the mystery is somehow kind of dealt with and solved. The other thing we might do, we might go to the other side and say, we just dismiss, dismiss it completely, and say, the transcendent is so great, he's up there, he kind of does his thing, I kind of do mine, there's no sense in really trying to figure that one out. But the psalmist does Neither. He doesn't diminish the distance, or does he dismiss it? He stares into it, and he swims in the mystery and does not drown. What does he do? He worships. And that's what it calls us to do. That's what, as we look and we acknowledge who he is and who we are in light of him, he calls us to worship him. Worship's been said as a mixture of awe combined with gratitude. Awe with gratitude. And I think in our culture, that wonder and awe is lacking. I look at my own life. I'm thankful, but there's that sense of wonder at who he is that's mixed with that. And that's where the psalmist ends in this this verse. He asks the questions. He has no real answers. Who is man and what is man? He just says, I don't know, but I'm I'm amazed at the mystery of God's care for man. Why would he do this? I don't know. So we see God's majesty put on display in our weakness, not just to solve our problems, but his enemies are silenced as he fills our mouth with praise in the midst of our weakness. We see God's majesty seen in the way that he cares for us. And as we swim, if you will, in that mystery, as we worship who he is without diminishing him the distance or dismissing who he is. Then Psalmist goes on in verse 5 and 6 to remind us and to tell us the role that he's given us and the status that man, man has. Verse 5, Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. You have crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet. You see there the, the, the status that he gives to man. Again, we don't understand it. You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. You have crowned him with glory and honor. Referring certainly to the image of God that's been placed in us. That there's glory and honor. There's respect and dignity that each one of us carry. Not because it's innate, because God has placed his image in us and on us. And because of that, there's a degree to which we can display his glory. And we see that. This takes us back to the creation account. If you'll look with me in Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27. We see here at the creation, God does something different with man that he has not done with the rest of creation. Does two things, and and Psalm 8 picks up on this and expresses them both. Verses 26 and 27 of Genesis 1. First page of your Bibles. Uh, then God said, let us make man in our image. After our likeness, let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. and We see they're both, right? He says, I'm going to, we're going to place the image of ourselves in them. Honor and glory as a result of this image. And then secondly, He gives us dominion, rule. He calls us to care and to tend for the particular places, the spheres of influence that He's placed us over, to take care of that and to rule it. There's a problem though, isn't there? And the problem is what? The problem is that the way that's displayed, the glory and honor, the image of of God that's in us, has been broken and marred. That there's distance between what's held out for us and what scripture tells us is true there's a huge gap between this the honor and glory the image of God is not easily seen in us our ability to rule our ability to tend and care for to lead and to love god is placed in our care in our sphere of responsibility our homes and our families our jobs and on and on it goes our rule is oftentimes harsh irresponsible and even times destructive as we try to bring rule and we try to bring order to chaos in our homes and our workplaces, on and on, it's oftentimes harsh and irresponsible and at times even destructive. And even the sphere of influence that God has placed us in is not easily ruled. The things that we try to rule, we try to grow grass and we get weeds, we try to raise godly kids and we go at times, what are we getting? It's not easy. We don't rule easily, and those who are under our care don't respond well. And we understand this in light of the fall. You can look at this another time, but in Genesis chapter 3, following the fall, the curse, we see that it's applied. The curse is applied to, certainly to Satan in the way Christ would deal with that, but it's also applied to the woman in pain and childbearing, even as the woman, as God uses women to produce fruit that will grow and fill the earth. There's pain there. There's, there's tension and pain in relationships, male and female, especially the marital relationships, and I don't have to illustrate that. There's pain and tension there. And even as the man attempts to rule and grow something good in this world, he realizes things don't grow very easily, not just in the, in the, in the earth But as we try to grow anything good in our homes, the soil of our relationships, our family, our jobs, society, culture, even the soil of our own hearts has been cursed and corrupted so much so that ruling and reigning and loving and leading seems virtually impossible. And there's days that you wake up in the morning and you go, I don't know what I'm going to do. I don't know how I'm going to rule and love what God you've placed in front of me. And yet there's two things we need to remember. First, that we need to acknowledge the rule that God has given to us. He says there is status, the image, honor, and glory, and he is placed under us, under our care, responsibility. And as we seek to carry that out, even in the midst of frustration and pain and toil and sweat and tears, what happens? He is glorified. He is shown to be great as we try and attempt to do that. We seek to bring his rule as his representatives to the places and spheres of influence that he has placed us. But the second part of this is important to remember. We cannot do this. We do not do this on our own, that it's Christ. But the fall is corrupted and damaged. Jesus, our forerunner, has set about fixing by his life and death and resurrection. Turn to Hebrews chapter 2. I read this in the call to worship in our Presentation of the Gospel. I'm going to conclude with this passage. Hebrews chapter 2. It's interesting. The author of Hebrews takes a little bit different spin on the verse that we just read. Chapter, verses 5 and 6. He does something a little bit different because he applies it to Christ. The uh, the psalmist says this is about humanity. And Hebrews, the author of Hebrews looks at this and says, This is about Christ as well. Verse 6 It has been testified somewhere, somewhere it happens to be Psalm 8. What is man that you're mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. Real quick. As he sees Christ, he sees everything is made subject to him. He rules over all things. That's true. And yet, reality might tell us something different, right? There's a gap here. Is he really in control? Is the world really being controlled by him when you look at sin and hurt and health difficulties and on and on it goes. And you see that the the author of Hebrews picks up on this at the end of verse 8. He says, at present though, we do not yet see all things being brought subject and made subject to him. We don't see it with our eyes, but nonetheless it's true. And he goes on to describe what Christ has done in bringing about this work. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. There we have the gospel connecting the two. Offering to us, not just answers and solutions to our lives, but offering to us real life. And what the psalmist does throughout all of Psalm chapter 8, he puts on display the majesty of God. And I mentioned earlier, the majesty of God is what? It's the visible display of his greatness. How is God's visible, how is his greatness most visibly displayed? Certainly in Christ. And as we look to him, we find that in and through our weakness... We find that we're strong. We're able to defeat His enemies. And in so doing, His majesty is displayed. As we look to the skies and we go, who am I that this, this God should love us? Who are we? We see His mysterious care and we, we worship Him. And His majesty is put on display. And here, as we attempt to rule and to reign, as we attempt to, to love those who've been placed under our care, as we attempt to... To bring his rule in our lives. We see his majesty and he promises to be with us. In the reparation of his image in each one of us. As well as in our ability to love and to rule. Because Christ is ruling. Because Christ has tasted death for us. And has broken the curse. Because he holds out a day when all of this will be repaired. This will all be undone. C.S. Lewis said this um, He said, I believe in God like I believe in the sun, the sun, S-U-N, not because I see it, but because by it I see everything. Let me say that again. I believe in God like I believe in the sun, not because I see it, but because I see everything by it. As we look through the lens of scripture and we see God, what he does for us is he illumines our situations and he helps us to see and respond rightly to what's there I stood there that day and watching the sun come up and I realized that he, I was seeing things. I was, be able, I was able to see more accurately and respond rightly as that sun revealed. That sun revealed what was there. So as we look into the lens, lens of scripture and the majesty of God, we're enabled to truly see him and by him see all things. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful that you've displayed your majesty. Grateful that it's seen in our weakness. It's seen in this mysterious care that you have for us. And it's seen in our fumbling attempts to rule, to live out the image that you have placed it within us. And it's seen most of all in Christ, that we look at him, who is the author and perfecter of faith, the one that uses our weaknesses to silence your enemies. He's the one that demonstrates and shows us that care that you have for us and the one that enables us to rule even as we follow after him. Do that in our lives this week. Help to unpack the truth in and out of each day as we wake each morning Do be of that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please rise for the, the benediction. Um, the response to the benediction is I will follow Jesus and all we're saying there is as I follow Jesus, the forerunner who's gone before us, I can trust he'll use my weaknesses. I can trust I can rest in who he is and that he'll enable me to live out the role he has for me. Receive this as God's benediction. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus for all generations, forever and ever. Amen. And all God's people said, I will follow Jesus. Amen.